0: Hey Rachel, what's the deal with Polaris?
1: Uh, you know Miles. Magnetic powers. Gets possessed a lot. On again, off again with Havoc.
0: So, is she Magneto's kid? Well, for now at least. But wasn't he faking that to make her work for him?
1: Oh no, that was a
0: robot double. Of course it was.
1: The real Magneto rescued her from the plane crash she inadvertently caused as a baby by freaking out when her mom and dad got in a fight over mom's affair with Magneto. And then he had Mastermind write him out of her memory because the miracles of magnetism apparently don't extend to good parenting.
0: And the green hair?
1: Another miracle of magnetism.
0: Huh. Speaking of magnetism, didn't she get powered on M-Day, but she's got her powers in space and now she's leading X-Factor.
1: Well, when she became Pestilence, Apocalypse fused celestial technology to her nervous system, which gives her a rough approximation of her old powers.
0: How'd she fall for that?
1: Oh, she'd been having a really rough time, and Apocalypse sent a little alien dude only she could understand to be her friend. What?! Rachel Edidin
0: and I'm Miles Stokes,
1: and we are here to explain the X-Men because
0: it's about time someone did. Welcome
1: to the eighth episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera.
0: So this last week we were uh, for the first time on another podcast. This was uh, Fan Bros. This is
1: our first crossover event ever. That there are like six variant covers.
0: I was going to make that joke. You made it first.
1: They're all foil. Four of them have Wolverine on them.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I think we didn't come off as sounding uh, too foolish, I, I hope. But you should check it out. Fan Bros is a really awesome geek podcast. Whether uh, we are on it or not, I recommend listening to them. They're pretty great.
1: Going into this episode, we're diving into Chris Claremont, who's the definitive writer of the X-Men. And we have had to do so much reading. And I just want to point out, listeners, that we did this instead of doing what I wanted to do forever this week, which was play Lego Marvel Superheroes because we just unlocked the X-Men. So we've been running around basically doing all of the levels of Cyclops and Beta Ray Bill, and it's the best thing.
0: Also going around on uh, Iceman's ice slides. I I just want to do that for my entire life. If I could find a job that was doing that, that would be great.
1: This is how much we love you listeners.
0: So let's talk about Chris Claremont.
1: Chris Claremont is, as we said, the definitive writer of the X-Men. And I want to take a minute to talk about what that means, because it's something that is really unique to X-Men among superhero comics. Chris Claremont wrote X-Men for 17 straight years, from 1975 to 1991.
0: What's important to point out is he wasn't just writing like the book called Uncanny X-Men, but he was also writing an increasing number of spinoffs as time went on, like from New Mutants to the Wolverine series to all sorts of Excalibur. things. Excalibur.
1: That's, again, not something you see in superhero comics. I was trying to think of, of equivalents, equivalent definitive writers, and the closest I could come up with, to was Walter Simonson on Thor. And for comparison, uh, Simonson's definitive amazing run on Thor lasted four years
0: which is by the way my favorite run of anybody on anything ever
1: yeah if you haven't read that you really should because it is just superlative claremont because of that defined x-men in a way that no other single writer has with a company-owned property the x-men as we think of them are very much chris claremont's creations even the characters who he didn't create to begin with his versions of those have informed you know every other portrayal and every other run since then.
0: So Claremont, he hasn't really been writing an X-Men series for more than a few issues at a time in like, what, 20 years or so?
1: He's done sort of on-again, off-again stuff. He wrote Extreme X-Men for a few years in the aughts. Um, uh, he, that's
0: x ex- Extreme, extreme yeah. X-Men. You gotta, it, you gotta get the pause in there.
1: And then then there were series like X-Men The End, the idea of which was to basically let him come back and write what he considered, you know, his, his idea for the final X-Men story. There were people who were born at the beginning of Claremont's run by the end of it, had graduated from high school. It was one guy. During that time, X-Men went from like the weird little jerk-off book of the Marvel Universe. No one was reading it. Nobody cared about it.
0: Well, first, let's talk about what the X-Office was like in Marvel at the time.
1: At that point, it was really just Len Wein when Claremont came on. He started out as an intern at Marvel, and he ended up editing there and writing. And then for a lot of this time, it was some combination of Claremont and Nesenti and Louise Simonson, all three of whom were, you know, the core X-editors and X-writers during the bulk of Claremont's run.
0: Now, we got a lot of our information on sort of what the Marvel offices were like at this point from a documentary that Rachel found.
1: Yeah, this is called Chris Claremont's X-Men. If you're interested in sort of the behind-the-scenes stuff about Claremont's run and about Marvel during the 70s and 80s, we highly, highly recommend it. It's not a terrifically made film, but the interviews are superlative. They're fascinating. Simonson, Claremont, and Nesenti are all brilliant. They've all got a lot to say.
0: And Jim Shooter, who was the editor, as uh, especially as the X-Men line got more and more successful, makes a really great almost comic book villain like they're he all talking his about own death him. twice uh, and he's a robot for one of those times <laughs> no but um like so <laughs> the other
1: time he's the changeling
0: claremont and simonson and nesenti they're trying to talk nice about shooter but you can just sort of see the rage bubbling beneath and then shooter he's trying to be really nice and charitable but there's like just this sort of megalomaniac right under the surface it's really wonderful
1: and it's great for a, a window into the evolution of x-men over time and how it went from not even b-string to the flagship title
0: now a few episodes ago we talked about giant size x-men number one which was basically the first new x-men material people had seen in i think more than five years at that point
1: now that issue was written by len ween and drawn by dave Cockrum. the characters were generally creations of Cockrum or ween the idea was to have you know an international x-men team that for the most part was newcomers either to the marvel universe in general or to x-men in particular and miles dug up a really great quote from claremont talking about the state of x-men when he came onto it.
0: The quote is such, "'The beauty of writing X-Men at that time was that nobody had any expectations at all. We were so far beneath the radar. It was Dave, Cockrum, and me and the X-Men. We were like, what outrageous thing can we do now? How about a space battle?' Dave would go, "'Whoa, yeah, space battle, yeah. Starship, binary stars, eat your heart out, Star Trek. It was all the stuff that we wanted to see and no one would ever do.'" You know, alien space battles and demons. Let's kill off Jean. Nobody will see it coming. And then we'll bring her back. We wanted to do stuff that we enjoyed and stuff that was fun. Let's blow up Kennedy Airport. Let's throw in homages to John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Let's bring back Magneto and have him beat the living daylights out of the X-Men. It was almost like, can you top this? In this issue, leprechauns. For some reason, the effervescence, the audacity, the good stuff outweighed the bad. I look at it now and it's like, oh god, I could throw out like two-thirds of the copy. We didn't know what we were doing, but we were certainly enjoying ourselves.
1: Effervescence and audacity are two words that I think define Claremont's entire run. He was someone who cared deeply about keeping stories dynamic. The Teflon status quo in superhero comics, the revolving door of death, these are all things that are often byproducts of books where you have multiple writers cycling in and out and editorially driven stories. And Claremont's goal on X-Men was to create a storyline that kept changing and a cast that kept changing to have characters leave and cycle out and back in. And to really have, you know, a long game story, you can reasonably look at those 17 years as one long epic.
0: One long, really confusing at times, self-contradictory epic, but nonetheless.
1: On the other hand, it's one writer. And so while it is self-contradictory and there are retcons, if you just look at the Claremont run on its own, it's a lot more narratively cohesive than the rest of X-Men. If we were just explaining the Claremont run, I think we could probably get through that in a year or two.
0: (laughs) Yep. As opposed to, man, we'll be doing this thing till we're old and gray.
1: So Claremont defined the X-Men. I want to take a look at what that means. A lot of the stuff on his run are things that we've come to think of as cliches. So you catch phrases, mind control, Phoenix, the way certain characters are written they weren't at first. I mean, they were they were things that he was he was really creating whole cloth.
0: Right. It's kind of like, you know, you go back and if, if you're somebody who's pretty young at this point, you read Lord of the Rings and you're like, oh, this is so cliche or this has all been done before. Well, no, at the time it hadn't. It was kind of what started everything. Well, OK, Norse mythology and other stuff did, but it was at least what popularized it. And with Claremont, it's kind of the same thing.
1: And again, if you have one person on a book for that long, you, you reach the point where someone's narrative fetishes become defining motifs. So one of the f- big changes with Claremont's X-Men is that it's character driven
0: we've talked a little about how for instance in giant size x-men number one when we did the episode about that how you'll see little bits of characters and how their powers work and what their attitudes are like in battle and once claremont takes over you know the next issue with the first issue of uncanny x-men after giant size x-men number one you start seeing that like way way more and it does not let up some of
1: that is claremont some of it i think is dave art.
0: Oh, yeah, seriously. Dave Cockrum's art does not get enough credit.
1: It's amazing. And one of the things Claremont talks about in the documentary is that it's a really character-driven book, and the focal the characters shift depending on the artist. So with Cockrum, you know, Nightcrawler is, is his guy. He loves drawing Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler shows up front and center in a lot of places. And so Nightcrawler ends up taking a more central role in dialogue and in storytelling. And with Burn, it's Wolverine.
0: So uh, here's a question. Rachel, if you were a phenomenal comic book artist, who would be sort of your focal character from this era?
1: You know, I'm going to go with Nightcrawler, actually.
0: He's kind of the coolest character at the time. I'm
1: I'm a Cyclops fan, but I think in this era and in this type of X-Men, Nightcrawler is a great point of view character. He's interesting and he's relatable in ways that the rest of the characters aren't yet.
0: I love how like the blue guy with fangs who was in a circus in Germany is the relatable one
1: the beauty of X-Men. That nails what the book should be.
0: Totally. For me, by the way, I think it would be Banshee just because I think making him the star of the X-Men would be an awesome challenge and I would love to take it on.
1: So another thing that Claremont does, another definitive Claremont thing... And this is, this is one of those things that, again, you can do when you've got one title for 17 years, is that Claremont is all about the long game.
0: The long game.
1: Almost immediately, Xavier starts having visions, and he's worried he's losing his mind. And it is two years before you get the payoff for that.
0: That's something we should point out, that at this point, X-Men was still sort of, it was not a sure thing as a comic, so they were only publishing it every two months.
1: Claremont's sowing seeds for stories that are going to take Years to play out, both because of the bi monthly schedule and just because he's like, yeah, screw it. I'm going to tell epic stories in this. Later on, the Phoenix shows up in uh, 101 and it's a four year slow burn. From there to the Dark Phoenix Saga.
0: That's something that, uh, as we were rereading this, uh, I don't think either of us had remembered. Like, Jean Grey turns into the Phoenix, and we'll get to the details on that, really soon into the run. And that's a huge, crazy thing that's become one of the biggest plot points in the entire franchise ever.
1: And we think of that as leading straight into the Dark Phoenix Saga, but it doesn't. She's, She's the Phoenix for a good 30 or
0: 40 issues. Something like, yeah.
1: Finally... Something that I think of as definitive Claremont is, again, that dynamism. It's stuff changing over time. People leave the team. People get married, have kids, get other jobs. New characters come in. And that commitment to not just having it be the same five people forever is what's created the massive expanse of sprawling, confusing X universe?
0: Right. This is a world with marrow, maggot, Cecilia Rays, skin. Come to think of it, most of them are dead at this point. But yes. nonetheless, my point stands. And
1: even the non mutant pack of characters, you know, Stevie Hunter, Maura Taggart, Gabrielle Haller, all of those guys. Like this is a really fleshed out world. And speaking of things that Claremont loves.
0: Oh man, Claremont has uh, has a way with words.
1: Does he ever? Claremont is really wordy. In the quote you mentioned, oh God, I throw out like two thirds of the copy. And he does a lot of things like describing what's happening while it's drawn in the panel. But he's got this purple narration that I absolutely love. And that's really that makes his comics instantly identifiable. The first issue that he does, X-Men 94, is lettered by a guy who you're not then going to see for a long time, but um, Tom Orzakowski, who I sort of think of as the man who enabled Claremont, because Orzakowski is a terrific letterer, and he's one of those letterers who can Tetris a huge amount of copy into a very small amount of space and still have it be readable. And I genuinely wonder later on in the run, like whether Claremont would have eventually ended up going more concise if he hadn't had Orzakowski eventually as a regular letterer.
0: It wouldn't feel like Claremont if he if he wasn't writing like that. So let's talk about some of the things that are very Claremont specific that let you know you're reading a Claremont book.
1: Well, the Claremontisms are the classics. These. Fall- into two categories. There are phrases that he uses a lot in the narration. You know, the man called Cyclops.
0: Should we just go down a list here?
1: And then there are the ones that I think of these as like the descriptive Claremontisms and then the Claremontisms you yell to freak someone out during sex.
0: To freak someone out or to turn them on?
1: I don't know, Miles. I think you're probably better qualified to answer that than I am.
0: Oh, man. Do we really need to give people uh, this much of a spotlight into our relationship?
1: I think we just did.
0: <laughs> so let's just throw out some Claremontisms.
1: Then you won't see this till the New Mutants, but I'm not invulnerable when I'm blastin'. By the
0: White Wolf!
1: Unglaublich! Goddess! The focused totality of his, her, or our psychic power. Not today,
0: and not by you. I
1: possess you, body and soul.
0: No quarter was asked, and none given.
1: Comes with the uniform.
0: I love you. And I you. That fact alone makes them deadly beyond imagination.
1: There are also narrative tropes that he falls into, and of those, my absolute favorite is the malicious narrator. Oh, yeah, I love this. There are a lot of times when Chris Claremont just starts yelling at the characters. I sort of think of it as Claremont. Miles sort of thinks of it as, as a malicious narrator. I guess, who could it be? Like Uatu, maybe?
0: Uatu the Watcher? He's just a total douche.
1: Okay, okay, new head canon. So Uatu the Watcher is watching this unfold and basically just yelling at the characters like we yell at television.
0: So this is basically even more space-oriented Mystery Science Theater 3000?
1: Yes. Yes, it is. And I'm just it is seeing, now.
0: Now I'm just seeing the Watcher with like a couple of little robot buddies and like a mad scientist villain oh we just made the marvel universe so much better rachel
1: so the best part about this isn't just that he yells at the characters it's that sometimes they respond
0: this is when cyclops is really messed up over something that happens
1: actually this is this is thunderbird's death thunderbird hadn't gotten out that's the real hell of his death isn't it cyclops because you know he hadn't even tried to get out you and the x-men had saved the world from nuclear holocaust but you've lost a man to do it and try as you might you can't balance those scales in your mind or in your heart Can you, Cyclops? No. Can you?
0: No! Can you? No! No!
1: So yeah, it's just yelling straight at the characters. Ah, he does it again with Wolverine after Jean dies and comes back with Phoenix. He just gets really, really mean. We told you so, Wolverine, because you really should have expected that Jean's friends would have stayed as close to her as possible until they knew her fate, one way or the other. But then again, maybe you shouldn't have. After all, you've never had any friends.
0: I love this next part, life and death, it's all the same to you, as meaningless, as casually disposed of, as a bunch of flowers.
1: So we've talked about the the X-Men fighting to protect a universe who hates and fears them. And this kind of emphasizes that this is there. They're in a hostile universe. Right. Like
0: the universe itself hates and fears them. Yeah.
1: Not just the people in it.
0: Okay. So we've talked about kind of what Claremont's run is like. Let's just sort of dive into it. Let's dive into what happens. How this stuff gets started.
1: Well, we start with the return of Silver Age villain Count Nefaria.
0: Now, you'll probably remember Count Nefaria as the most important villain in the Marvel Universe who's uh, really been formative in almost every superhero's life.
1: He has a monocle.
0: Okay. So actually... Count Nefaria is really, really forgettable. But nonetheless, he does have a monocle, He does though. have a monocle. He's the first villain they go up against.
1: Now, this comes straight out of Giant Size X-Men number one, and if you're familiar with Giant Size X-Men number one, you know that what that means is that it starts with Sunfire quitting the team.
0: Of course. Uh, it specifically starts with the question, what do you do with 13 mutants? And what this issue number 94 tells us is what you do is you have most of them leave. So Sunfire quits because that's kind of like his trick. That's
1: his secondary. His secondary mutation is joining and quitting teams.
0: And being a total dick about it the whole time. That's not
1: a mutation. That's a gift.
0: So uh, the other original x except for Cyclops also quit.
1: And Cyclops decides that he needs to stay because he's freaked out by his powers. He doesn't feel like he can pass a normal society. It's actually
0: really, really tragic. The other X-Men, they're like, Hey, you know, we were your students, Professor X, but we've kinda graduated, we've moved we've moved on, and like now you have this other team of X-Men. So we need to kind of do our own thing. And there's this really sad scene where Gene leaves and Cyclops says he has to stay and they share this one last kiss. And I want to
1: point out that Gene moves to New York to get an apartment with Millie the model and Misty Knight, and the fact that there was never a series about the three of them solving mysteries is a goddamn crime.
0: If you haven't heard of Misty Knight she has a giant afro and a robot arm and sometimes she punches sharks.
1: She is half of Daughters of the Dragon which is again one of the best Marvel books that you've never read.
0: Cyclops is really messed up over Gene and the other team uh, leaving and over the way the Krakoa thing went in Giants has X-Men number one. So he's like pushing them really, really, really hard in training.
1: And Thunderbird in particular is pushing back. Thunderbird doesn't like authority. Thunderbird doesn't like being told what to do. Thunderbird doesn't like teamwork. And Thunderbird really doesn't like any of his teammates.
0: He does, for some reason, like his super stereotypical Native American costume. I couldn't tell you why.
1: They're starting gradually to develop a team dynamic, but it's all really tentative and none of them quite get a long yet. They're just this ragtag group that the professor got together to rescue his other team when there's a distress call from Beast.
0: Right. Now, Beast is uh, two things at this point. He is a blue and furry. Since Silver Age X-Men ended, he has made himself blue and furry through sciency stuff that we'll probably cover at some this point in the future. In the
1: Defenders and The Avengers and a bunch of other non-X books. We will come back to this later. What you need to know right now is that Dave Cockrum is still kind of getting the hang of drawing him. So he looks sort of like an owl. Uh,
0: but yeah, he's on The Avengers and he's like, hey, Professor Xavier, you know, we used to work together. Obviously, there's this thing going on. Count Nefaria, who's got an amazing monocle, has taken over this nuclear arsenal, and the Avengers were—I don't know—doing stuff. We're fighting Kang or having a poker tournament or something. So, can your X-Men take care? We're being
1: a flagship title of the Marvel lineup.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna
1: throw you guys a bone here. You yeah, go, go, go! Fight Count Nefaria and save save the world from nuclear annihilation or whatever.
0: And so Professor X says, "Well, you know, I may not have my original X Men, but I have these X Men, and this stuff is really important. X Men, go to it. Let's save the world from nuclear." And hell.
1: Cyclops being sensible is like, but but yeah, skills and personality conflict and Xavier's like nah just dive
0: in there. Anyway the X-Men go off and the details of the fight isn't really important other than that Count Nefaria has an army of animen who are like these people who are also animals so there's like the ape guy and the dragonfly lady and and whatever. And And the
1: the army's really unhappy about them helping. They are really annoyed that they've sent a bunch of mutants but they're like okay well you know bottom of the barrel but we'll take what we can get.
0: Which kind of makes sense given that nobody was buying the comic at the time you know. I
1: kind of feel like the universe around the X-Men at this point is an extended metaphor from Marvel editorial
0: so the X-Men they fight the Animan and they fight Count Nefaria um, and what they find out is that this nuclear countdown Count Nefaria basically says hey I'm going to launch all of America's nukes unless every country in the world gives me money proportionate to how much they can pay which I guess is kind of progressive for it's a super nice, villain. yeah.
1: it's sliding scale ransom
0: Count Nefaria I respect your fashion and your politics do
1: there. you Miles do you? No! No!
0: Crap, now Rachel's the narrator. This, this isn't going to go well. The X-Men are sort of figuring out how to fight as a team, and they're not very good at it to start, and we get to see, uh, as readers, them sort of show us how they can use their powers, how they can work together, what their personality conflicts are, like the fact that Wolverine's just a total dick to literally everyone every time he does anything. And ultimately, the, the X-Men win, but Count Nefaria is escaping. At this point, it's only Banshee and Thunderbird, who have been knocked out in a previous Fight that are are nearby, and so they're like the the hell you say as as the count tries to escape in an, in an airplane, and Thunderbird jumps onto the plane and starts punching it.
1: And Banshee points out that you know he could take it down with the sonic scream, but Thunderbird is hell-bent and determined to punch this plane to death. And he does. To his
0: credit, he does. But the downside is the plane blows up in midair and kills him. Like, not like, oh, no, we think Thunderbird's dead, but now he's going to be fine. Like, no, he straight up is exploded to death and is dead forever.
1: So let's talk about the character dynamics at this point, because we've spent three issues building this team, and now one of them has just suddenly been killed. So who are we dealing with at this point? What are the characters as we've seen them so far.
0: There's Professor Xavier, of course, back at HQ. and taking his death. Uh, probably. And then we have Cyclops from the original team. He's stuck around. He's still the team leader at this point because he's by far the most experienced. We also have Wolverine, Banshee, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Storm.
1: So Wolverine, at this point, is still just sort of the curmudgeon who doesn't like anyone. Although you see very early on of the earliest threads of a couple friendships that are going to run through all of X-Men, uh, most significantly with Nightcrawler. Colossus... Colossus is just kind of everyone's friend in this. Like, he is the nicest dude ever.
0: Right. The only time he really ever disagrees with anybody is when they're mean to each other. And which...
1: then he's still really polite about it.
0: Right. He's like, you know, you, you must not touch her. Colossus will not let you. He also talks in the third person a lot. But then again, so does everyone. And at this he's point. got
1: an adorable schoolboy crush on Storm.
0: Which, to be fair, I, I I would too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we all do.
0: You also see Nightcrawler. Like, one of the things I like about him, again, we've talked about how he's the most relatable. And I think he's also by far the most compassionate. At one point, a little bit later, Cyclops is very distraught. It's just
1: turned out that Gina's is going to be okay after they think that she's pretty much dead. Right.
0: We'll we'll get to the context of that in a little bit. But Nightcrawler, you know, goes to talk to Cyclops, sees that he's crying alone. He's like, you know, sometimes the best thing someone can do is just to give their friends the space they need. And he closes the door. It's like, oh, Nightcrawler. He goes away
1: and makes excuses for him to the rest of the team. Yeah, Nightcrawler is just like, he's just a really good guy.
0: Right. He's a sweetheart. We love him. As opposed to, say, Wolverine, who's just a dick all the time.
1: But he, you see, really early on, he and Nightcrawler start to develop this great friendship and this dynamic that again lasts really is still there in current day X-Men where they just click like they are bros and they get each other and they give each other shit but they will totally go to the mat for one another with anyone else
0: right and I mean that's one of the things I I love about X-Men and always have the X-Men when you get down to it are a family they don't always get along they don't always agree but they've pretty much got each other's backs to the bitter end
1: much like our families they involve clones and displaced time travel and they just sprawl out beyond reason
0: just all the usual family dynamics Anyway, to go back to the plot, so Thunderbird dies. Now, he's he's been really frustrated. You get the impression that he's had a life full of frustration, growing up on a reservation, just having a lot of institutionalized racism really mess with his entire life, his entire world, and then he's on this team of people that he sort of takes that anger out on, and he does allude to that in one of the training room sessions in the Danger Room. So, all of that comes to a head, and I think you could easily interpret this scene as him basically seeking a glorious death, like, essentially killing himself in such a way that it f- he feels it'll give his life meaning.
1: Yeah, grabbing control of the one thing he feels like he has control of.
0: Right, and it is a shock. Like, at this point, like, holy crap, this character who looked like he was going to be a major member of this team, he's hes dead? Really? Like, full-on dead? And this was really in an era where the Well, and constant... this character
1: who's been a catalyst for a lot of the team's interactions, too—
0: Right, exactly. He wasn't just a throwaway character, you know, also appearing. Uh, he, he was kind of a, a big deal. So the X-Men have won the mission, but at what cost? So then, uh, next issue after this opens with Cyclops just essentially despairing after what had happened.
1: This is one of those great X-Men, Marvel Universe things. So Cyclops is completely fucked up over Thunderbird's death. Cyclops goes off and just basically lets loose on the Xavier grounds. Um, he's, he's just blasting at random. Because Bronze Age X-Men, he hits an ancient alien cairn, unleashing the demons contained therein.
0: That reminds me, Rachel, we should really uh, bring in a groundskeeper to clean up the ancient alien cairn in our yard.
1: Well, we'd, we'd have to talk to the property management company about this, Miles. That's one of the downsides of renting, is that you really don't have a lot of say about those <gasps> cairns.
0: A cursed red tape.
1: And then they have they fight these demons. They take them out as a team, barely During all of this, Professor X is at way lower power than usual because he's been having these overwhelming nightmares about battles in
0: space. Uh, If you're going to have overwhelming nightmares, I guess they might as well be about cool, like, space bug ships fighting each other. Right?
1: I want nightmares about that instead of, like, everyone I know pretending they don't know me. Hmm. Hmm. To be fair, I think that might be a thing that happens later in Claremont X-Men.
0: 17 years, a lot can happen. One thing I'd like to point out, so we're looking at the Claremont era of X-Men with a much sort of uh, more focused lens than we did with the Silver Age, simply because the stuff that happens is a lot more consequential, but not everything is. And so like when the X-Men fight this demon, the X-Men fight a demon. That's really all you have to know about this It's a
1: pretty cool fight. We're going through this issue by issue right now. We're not going to do this with the entire run. In the early days, this is again really establishing and defining what X-Men is going to grow into becoming. And we feel like it's really important to take a very close look at the early Claremont stuff.
0: And so, speaking of, talking about the long game that you were mentioning before, Rachel, um, very early on we see these space visions. We also see this guy named Eric the Red. Uh, he first shows oh, up... Oh,
1: can we talk about the history of Eric the Red?
0: Right, so he shows up here as a villain who's like mind-controlled Havoc and Polaris, and so they come back as like his henchmen.
1: But originally Eric the Red is Cyclops, right? He's, yeah. he's Cyclops in a really stupid costume.
0: Oh, this is one of my favorite dumb Silver Age things. This is when uh, Polaris first shows up, and And Magneto's like, hey, you're my daughter because we both have magnet powers. Clearly. And the X-Men say, hey, this guy is a terrible human being. And she says, well, I must work with my father. You know, the ties of family are stronger than the ties of morality. So
1: they decide they're going to undercut Magneto's operation from within. And the way that they're going to do this is by having... Cyclops dress up as a bondage Viking.
0: So Cyclops dresses up as this new fictional within fiction character, Eric the Red, and is like, hey, Magneto, you still got beat up by the X-Men last time. I need to work with you and take over your operation. And Magneto says, sure, because I have no choice. And then uh, once he has gained Magneto's trust, the X-Men, the rest of the X-Men just break in, which they could have (laughs) done anyway without the bondage Viking it's utterly pointless and that that really makes me wonder like if we ever get Chris Claremont on the show i want to ask him why did you bring back eric the red
1: because this eric the red isn't cyclops dressed as a bondage viking this this eric the red is actually another guy dressed up as a bondage viking.
0: But the same bondage viking.
1: So who is this Eric the Red?
0: Well, we're gonna get to more of this later because this is a long long burn. It's gonna be uh, more than two years before this dude is revealed. He's
1: a Shi'ar, right?
0: He's a Shi'ar agent called Devin Shikari. He was sent to Earth. He was exiled by Lalandra. Again, we're gonna explain all this. But for right now, the important part is he's basically uh, driving almost every villain the X-Men fight for a number of issues. Yeah,
1: every time they fight someone, it'll turn out that they were manipulated by or enabled by
0: or even just sort of monitored by, if they were already doing what he wanted, Eric the Red.
1: Who's actually...
0: Devin Shikari.
1: Of the Shi'ar, who, if you'll remember, are the space birds that we talked about when we talked about the Starjammers.
0: This is what we talk about when we talk about space birds.
1: That is my favorite Raymond Carver story.
0: What we Mm -hmm. talk about when we talk about Space Birds. Yeah,
1: what we talk about when we talk about (laughs) (laughs) X-Men.
0: So anyway, uh, yes, uh, Eric the Red, he's manipulating Havoc and Polaris. Now, one thing that confuses me here is that he has Havoc and Polaris fight the X-Men, and Cyclops, I mean, Havoc is his brother, and the X-Men, they fight them, and you would think, it's like, hey, my brother's being clearly controlled by a supervillain. Should I go find him? No, I'm going to go do some other stuff. Well, here's the
1: thing. Havoc already kind of has a history of getting mind-controlled, and or just selling out. The last time we ran into him, he was working for Larry Trask because he offered to help him control his powers. They pull this stuff and fly off, but there's also a more immediate crisis at hand.
0: Yeah, you're talking about the the space and the Sentinels and stuff like that? Yeah. So that actually doesn't happen immediately because the X-Men have this nice Christmas celebration in New York City first.
1: They do. They meet up with Jean Grey and they go ice skating. Right. And they run into Stanley and Jack Kirby.
0: Oh right, who who are horrified by Scott's. Who Scott disapproves? Yeah, yes. yeah.
1: Claremont has a lot of cameos, and some of them there. There are a lot of creator cameos in it, and there are a lot of there are a lot of just really random cameos. Like right, um, like
0: you mentioned the Dunesbury characters. Yeah, yeah. Joan
1: Caucus and Rick Redfern show up in Days of Future Past, which is maybe my favorite. There are a couple of actual NPR reporters who who become regular recurring characters who, mm-hmm. are, who are actually real people and real real newscasters.
0: Um, but yeah, so they're, they're in New York City Christmas, and one of the things I like that we see here is that um, it's implied that basically off panel, off camera, Storm and Gene have become friends. And a lot of people would say, hey, that's cheating. I really like it. It implies a world larger than what we see in the book.
1: Something Claremont talks about in the documentary pretty extensively is quiet moments. That's one of the things that I keep coming back to as my favorite parts of X-Men. That these are characters who are superheroes, who who lead ridiculous lives. They're also very much people, and a lot of that being people takes place off the panel. But you see glimpses into it, and you see glimpses of again dynamic development over time, and the things that they're doing when they're they're not saving the earth. You know, the things the comics focus on are generally the big universe-spanning fist fights and yeah you know, strategizing, and that stuff that directly connects to those. But there are glimpses into into more, and that more is a lot of what makes them relatable as characters and makes them compelling as a team and as an ongoing story. Right, it
0: makes them feel real. But anyway, quiet moments can't last because just when you're having a really good time a night out in the town, giant robots attack.
1: Every goddamn time.
0: So the Sentinels show up.
1: The X-Men keep thinking they've taken them out, but they will never take them out because they're Sentinels.
0: They're the Daleks of the Marvel Universe.
1: Oh God, they really are. I mean, even down to the point of, like, occasionally getting written as as becoming sentient and sympathetic. They're, they are the Daleks of mm-hmm. the Mar- Wow.
0: So who created this generation of Daleks? Uh, Sentinels.
1: This generation of Sentinels is created by a guy named Stephen Lang, who is of no relation to Scott Lang, the second Ant-Man. Stephen Lang is a scientist who really hates mutants and has spent the last long time uh, misappropriating government funding and creating the shadow program to redevelop Sentinels in a... Wider variety than we've seen before, which we'll we'll get into in the next couple issues. He's also gone to the Council of the Chosen. This is not expanded on at this point, but they are at this their secret branch of the Hellfire Club. Who, again, we talked about Claremont Long Game. Um, they are next going to show up and figure into the Dark Phoenix Saga, which is a good you know, forty-five issues out.
0: Something like yeah. So yes, uh, he's made these Sentinels and the X-Men. They find out that uh, three of them are captured. Uh, who is it? Like Banshee, Wolverine, and Jean. Oh, and also Xavier, who's on vacation at the time.
1: Yeah, um, Xavier's in the middle of the ocean with with his friend dr peter corbeau
0: who's um, a space dude. who basically
1: swims back to new york as far as i can tell
0: well he's an astronaut they, they have to be able to do these things
1: this is comic book science where everyone who has a doctorate is a doctor of everything and also an astronaut this is why you go to grad school
0: they are taken to the sentinel base which the other x-men quickly find out is in fact in space at this space station you know
1: stephen lang is a dick but he's kind of cool
0: he's a dick with really space, good space. connections
1: and some really dubious decision-making skills. So so Dr. Corbeau, being an astronaut, is able to get a shuttle mission put together in about two days.
0: Uh, where nobody knows who the uh, various astronauts are, which if they did, they'd be like, wait a minute, that dude's blue. Why is that dude blue? They just
1: know it's a it's an international team and also famous astronaut Dr. Peter Corbeau.
0: So they head off and they get in this big, crazy battle in space against Sentinels, and it's awesome. And I
1: want to I be a, a pedant briefly here because Dave Cockrum does something that I really appreciate. And it's such a small thing, but he does the stages of rocket separation right. As a space nerd, I I do really genuinely
0: appreciate that touch. Yeah. Uh, So anyway, they're they're in space, and they're quickly attacked by the original X-Men.
1: These are, it turns out, the X-Sentinels, because Stephen Lang, in a decision that only Stephen Lang can really explain has decided that the best way to take out mutants is by making robot duplicates of the X-Men who are really mean to them. He programs their personalities fairly accurately, like they fight and talk like the original X-Men. I guess their goal is to just utterly demoralize the new X-Men while while defeating them?
0: They're, they're allied with the narrator, that's what's going on.
1: Oh my god, is Stephen Lang the narrator? No, it can not be because the narrator yells at the Sentinels during that issue, too. This, I think, is just the voice of a hostile
0: universe. How do you, does this rabbit hole go?
1: Only Chris Claremont knows.
0: They fight the original X-Men. This is actually kind of cool because I would imagine if you're an X-Men fan at this point, you're still not really sold on the new team. So seeing your old people there kind of kicking the new team's ass, I can see that being a little satisfying. This is a
1: motif that'll come up again and again. It happens fairly early in Excalibur as well, and that's when Alan Davis is on covers, and there's a great cover that's tongue-in-cheek that's the, the X-Men and Excalibur fighting and Jean Grey mugging at the camera saying, if this doesn't
0: sell issues. I don't know what will. <laughs> yep. So anyway, the important part is they beat Stephen Lang. They beat the Sentinels. They beat the X Sentinels, and they head out. But the spaceship they came in is super messed up. Like the uh, radiation shielding is really broken from the space battle. And
1: there's an enormous solar flare coming.
0: And so they're and trying even, to even figure... even
1: with the ship working, it would be getting back to Earth with this is a gamble. They got onto Lang's space station by straight up ramming it with the shuttle.
0: And so Peter Corbeau, who's the only one who's an actual astronaut, says, hey, I could pilot this ship, but I wouldn't last 30 seconds if we're going through that solar flare without shielding. Right,
1: and the autopilot's out because, you know, again, they just rammed a space station. The only one of them who's qualified to fly the ship couldn't survive for long enough to do it, and the ship itself isn't going to survive re-entry. Except...
0: Except Jean Grey says, you know, uh, Peter, I could telepathically learn how to fly this thing from you. I could get that out of your head.
1: And telekinetically hold the ship together, screen out the radiation for long enough to get it down.
0: And Cyclops says, no, the the hell you say? You're you're totally going to die if you do that. I I won't allow it.
1: It is really obvious that this is a suicide mission. She's not framing it as that, but every single other one of the X-Men calls her out on it. And so eventually she just telepathically knocks out Cyclops and tells the others, look, either you let me do this or we all die go back into the radiation shielded area and just fucking let me work.
0: It's this really compelling scene. I mean, Jean, you see her saying, hey, maybe I can make it, maybe. No, I really can't. Well, at least I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, it's it's kind of heartbreaking. There's a
1: great moment. The last one she says goodbye to is Storm where she's like, are you really seriously going to try and stop me? Are you actually going to make this be the last conversation we have? And Storm's like, no, good luck.
0: And so the issue ends and Jean is clearly dying. The The shuttle is uh, going through re-entry. And then, all of a sudden, and the next Jean's thing we know... dead. Yeah, Gene is straight up deceased. They
1: land in the water. There's not even a body.
0: Until... The Phoenix. So, guys, uh, the Phoenix, you hear a lot about it. It is that cool. Gene as the Phoenix is that awesome.
1: And her death is that significant. This isn't a, a machination, a, you know, we decided to kill her off, but then we decided she was too awesome to let die. Like, this is, this, is, this is a contiguous story. But her death has a lot of impact, and so her return in the next issue and her transformation is a really big deal. And she shows up and she says, you know, the line that is is at this point the Phoenix line.
0: Hear me, X-Men. No longer am I the woman you knew. I am fire and life incarnate, now and forever. I am Phoenix! Um, I introduce myself at parties that way all the time, by the way.
1: It goes over really well. You'd be surprised.
0: It helps that I wear the green skin tight outfit.
1: Again, we think of this as launching, you know, the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga. But there's just a lot more story. And we're going to get into that story next episode. But for now, listener questions.
0: Uh, So first question, this is from Crooked Knight on Twitter. David, what is the quintessential Claremont accent? Like accent, but with X, which I love.
1: Yeah, props for doing that. You know, I'm going to have to go with Rogue. Why is that? Well, a southern accent spelled out is is horrific. Second, because, A, she's got a lot to say. You know, she's got a lot to say. And also, I think of the X-Men with phonetically written out accents, she's got the weirdest idioms attached to it.
0: I still remember uh, the one thing is, that sticks with me is actually from the X-Men cartoon. I'm not even going to try for the voice but she talks about how Cyclops looks like a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking Jumpy, chairs. Jumpier
1: than a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs, isn't it?
0: That's great. Do, do people, I mean, I lived in the South for six years. I, I don't think anybody said that. You lived,
1: we lived in, in, in Appalachia. That's not quite the South. Well, it's regardless.
0: Uh, so, okay, so Rogue, you think?
1: Um, Rogue, Gambit is pretty great too for similar reasons. Early on with the accents, he's really flailing. So like Banshee and Moira McTaggart, you don't really see him settle into those patterns. By the time Rogan Gamut get introduced, he's got this down to a science for some really dubious value of science. They're not the best. I don't think best is really an operative category here, but I'd say that those two are the definitive ones.
0: (laughs) I think for me, it's Banshee just because of the way he says the word foin, F-O-I-N-E.
1: Right. There are things that are phonetically spelled out wrong, like not even the way they're pronounced. Claremont does a lot of things that are right. There is a lot that we really love about him. His phonetic accents are not among those things. <laughs>
0: All right, so what's our next question?
1: Our next question is from uh, my colleague Graham McMillan. Graham asks, considering the amount of resurrection that's been part of the series and franchise since poor Jean Grey, has anyone tried to bring back Thunderbird outside of the Chaos War mini, although I may be misremembering whether he was in that one? I know his little brother has become part of various teams since his death, but you'd think there was potential for drama, or at least shock reveals, by bringing back John Proudstar himself.
0: Uh, So yeah, uh, Thunderbird has come back twice, but only in ways that were A, temporary, and B, acknowledged the fact that he was dead. The first one was this storyline called Necrotia,
1: Necrosha is best known as the storyline that brings back Doug Ramsey's Cypher, who's another famous dead x men
0: It was also known as the storyline going on at the same time as the Black Lantern stuff in DC, which was pretty much the same plot, but you know, whatever. Uh, so yeah, in Necrotia, um, a lot of uh, dead characters are brought back by Celine, who's this sort of psychic vampire witch character who was in the Hellfire Club. So he shows up as a a dead dude, and he actually fights uh, his younger brother, Warpath, James Proudstar, who's been a character in X-Force, and you have seen in Days of Future Past if you've seen the movie.
1: At least a version of him.
0: Yeah, and they fight, and uh, John Thunderbird basically tells Warpath, hey, it's time for you to let go, and then he goes back to being dead. For a little while, because then, uh, like Graham mentioned, in a crossover called Chaos War, uh, the realms of the dead are getting kind of messed up for very complicated reasons. Um, And Thunderbird's actually brought back to lead a team of dead X-Men characters. Banshee, Moira McTaggart, two of the Stepford Cuckoos, and three uh, multiple-man duplicates. Uh, To look. How does that
1: even work? Doesn't he reabsorb them when they die? uh,
0: You know, I think it's best that we don't look too deeply into this storyline. But that's what we do. Even we have our limits. So yeah, they'd have to look for a diary of the character Destiny, who you may remember for us mentioning in the Days of Future Past episode.
1: She was the one whose mask got briefly nailed to uh, Dazzler's face.
0: With a, with a knife. Um, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. So uh, there was a quote that I found from this guy named Michael Shiashe. I may be mispronouncing that. From a book called Native Americans in Comic Books, a critical study. Thunderbird becomes even more popular posthumously than he ever, he ever was while living. And I think that's true. He makes a much better symbol than he does an actual character.
1: Which is a little sad and which I think, again, speaks to the the issue of the X-Men metaphor and, and you know, symbols replacing reality. And that, that even happens with the literal characters sometimes.
0: It's true. But, you know, I think it works out because really Warpath, uh, who starts his super villain, actually, career, essentially trying to get revenge for the death of his brother, he becomes a way more compelling character than Thunderbird ever was or I would argue ever could have been. So uh, let's see. We have one more question. Uh, so this is from the Noir guy. Why is Wolverine put on every X team and Avengers team, even though his main character trait is grizzled loner?
1: So, the noir guy, I'm going to tell you a story about a man named Batman. Batman's definitive characteristic, or one of his definitive characteristics, is that he works alone. And He says that a lot. He says, I, I work alone. I can't do a Batman voice, Miles, could you?
0: I work alone.
1: I don't know if that's a Batman voice.
0: If I were Batman, that would be my voice.
1: Would you be like Italian poor Batman and just ride around on a bike having sex with housewives while their husbands were at work? That's like creepy lurking in the bushes Batman voice.
0: Hey man, I do my best. That's all you can ask.
1: So Batman's thing is that he works alone, but he's got a ton of sidekicks and he is on every single goddamn superhero team in the DC universe. And the reason for that is that he's a really popular character. And he's a character who a lot of writers and artists like. And... From a more cynical perspective, he's a character who a lot of writers and artists know, and a publisher knows, will attract people to their work if they stick him in. Then, Wolverine, in a lot of ways, has become the Batman of the Marvel Universe. He is a loner whose popularity and whose iconic status has resulted in a not always narratively coherent ubiquity. And this is something that again has be. We've mentioned this before. This is something that is. So common and so ridiculous that they periodically make fun of it in canon and in the comics. You know, there's 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 a bit where Cyclops is making team rosters and everyone everyone is is, is pissed off about their assignments. And Wolverine's like, how can I be on all of these teams at once? <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think it, it just comes down to the fact that he's he's a fun character to play with and he's a popular character. There is not a good narrative justification for this. I have. And I'm not going to go into it here because we're running out of time. I have I have a long no prize explanation that I will go into eventually. But today is not the day for that.
0: (laughs) See, I actually really like Wolverine on a team more than I like him solo. I like seeing him bounce off all these other different personalities because he's such a uh, that those loner traits are what really make uh, for some compelling character conflicts.
1: The thing is, when you have it constantly, it stops being significant. Like those loner traits, you can't have him be defined by loner traits and have him in a different team up every week, you have to have his default status being a loner and have the teams be something that happened happen peripheral to that or is an exception to that. And they haven't done that in a long time.
0: I'll buy that. So I think that's all the time we have for today.
1: Uh, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded at the Roseway in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out at welcometothatwholething.com.
0: And if you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes and or Stitcher. And check out our shop at rachelandmiles.redbubble.com for t-shirts and stickers.
1: Next time we'll be continuing our coverage of Early Claremont, contracting space madness, visiting the savage land, hopping across the pond to meet the mysterious mutant X and the leprechauns of
0: Cassidy Keep. I can't wait for the leprechauns. They can't wait for you either. We'll see you next time, listeners.